Welcome to Strange Talk. Hello, strangers. Welcome to another episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Thank you for joining me. So we're going to be diving into two cases. Um, the first case I'm going to be starting with goes by the name of Alfred Packer, and he was, he's not, he's considered one of the first recorded known cannibalisms, um, but he, I don't think he is the first ever because um, it even, cannibalism goes even back to the time of Neanderthals, because I believe there was a case where um, archaeologists found a cave in France where they found Neanderthals, like, remains. And they actually saw like bones around the Neanderthals that were that they uncovered, and it turned out there was bones around them that were from other Neanderthals, but that were broken in a manner of which they were trying to extract bone marrow. And they even found some bones that were still within the like. Well, obviously it's not in the stomach, but it was in the area where the stomach would be in the Neanderthal that they found. So it was to be believed that Neanderthals committed cannibalism in order to survive, which I, I I don't seem, I wouldn't be surprised if that's true or not. But the first case I'll be discussing is Alfred Packer. Uh, the next one I'll be discussing is, um, his name is Tatsumu, Tatsumu Miyazaki. So I'm probably going to mess up a lot of the names in that case because they are in Japanese and I'm not Japanese. <laughs> so, um, as much as I wish I was, uh, anyways, so the second story is going to be Tatsumo Miyazaki, also known as the Otako Killer. So if you're not familiar with him, maybe you'll get a kick out of him. But both of these stories are interesting nonetheless. So without further ado, let's get into Alfred Packer. So Alfred Grenier Packer was an American prospector who confessed to cannibalism during the winter of 1874. He and five other men attempted to travel through the high mountains of Colorado, during the peak of a harsh winter. When only Alfred reached civilization, he claimed that the others had killed each other for food and confessed to having lived off the flesh of his companions during his snowbound state, to having used it to survive his trek out of the mountains two months later. After his story was called into question, he hid from justice for nine years before being tried, convicted of murder, and sentenced to death. Packer won a retrial and was eventually sentenced to 40 years in prison for manslaughter. Um, if you want to watch a serious movie about Alfred Packer, you can actually watch... It's more of a biopic uh, movie. It's called The Legend of Alfred Packer. Um, and that was actually made in the 1980s. If you want to see a more comedic take on it, uh, you can always watch the movie that was made by Matt and Trey Parker. I'm Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the creators of <laughs> South Park. They actually made a, a, a musical out of it called Cannibal the Musical. So I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but I remember seeing it a while back. It was on Netflix. Um, those are both interesting movies, and I got a lot of my information from both of those films. They're actually really good. Well, The Legend of Alfred Packer is just more interesting. It's not entertaining. If you want to see a more entertaining storytelling of Alfred Packer, then I suggest go with Cannibal the Musical. It's funny, and it's loosely based off of Alfred and his expedition. Alfred Grenier Packer was born January 21st, 1842, in Alkany County, Pennsylvania, one of three children of James Packer and his wife, Esther Grenier. 
By the early 1850s, James Packer had moved his family to LaGrange County, Indiana, where he worked as a cabinet maker. Alfred Packard served in the Union Army in the American Civil War upon enlisting on April 22, 1862 at Winona, Minnesota in Company F, 16th U.S. Infantry Regiment. He gave his occupation as a shoemaker. He was honorably discharged due to epilepsy eight months later at Fort Ontario, New York. He moved south and on June 25, 1863, enlisted in Company L, 8th Iowa Cavalry Regiment at Ottawa, Iowa. However, he was discharged at Cleveland, Tennessee on April 22, 1864 for the same reason due to his epilepsy. He then traveled to the Rocky Mountains and worked at a mining-related jobs for nine years. So, he, could have, he sort of fell on hard times, but for the most part, he always seemed to, you know, get back on his feet. So, now we're going to head into the expedition that he went on where they where the cannibalism actually comes into play. So in November of 1873, Packer joined Bob McGrew's party of 21 men who left Porvo, Utah for the gold country around Breckenridge, Colorado. On January 21st, 1874, the party met um, Chief Olray, known as the white man's friend (laughs) near Montrose, Colorado. Chief Olray recommended they postpone their expedition until spring since they were likely to encounter dangerous winter weather in the mountains. Orre kindly offered to allow the men to stay with his tribe until the winter had passed. Some men in the party became restless and decided to ignore Orre's advice and attempt to find the government cattle camp near the Los Pinos Indian Agency. O.D. Lutzenheiser and three other men left first. Packer attempted to follow them, but Lossenheiser pointed a revolver at Packer and told him that if he saw him after they passed the point of the mountain, there would be trouble. Packer returned to the camp. The following week, on February 9th, Packer and five others left for the Los Pinos Indian Agency. Besides Packer, the group comprised Shannon Wilson Bell, James Humphrey, Frank Reddy Miller, George California Noon, and Israel Swan, the leader of the outfit, Bob McGrew, guided Packer's party until his horses could not continue. McGrew unloaded the men's provisions and went back to the Ores camp. What happened after is not very clear. On April 16, 1874, Packer arrived at the Los Pinos Indian Agency near Gunnison when Preston Nutter a member of McGrew's original group, asked Packer what happened to the rest of his party. Packer claimed that he had got his feet wet and frozen, and the others had abandoned him. Packer claimed he was broke and sold the Winchester rifle he had in his possession to Major Downer, the Justice of Peace, for $10 after a short stay at the agency. Packer said he wanted to return to Pennsylvania and accompanied Nutter and two other members of McGrew's original group to Sagashe, where he could buy supplies. During the course of this journey, Nutter saw that Packer had in his possession a skinning knife that had belonged to Frank Reddy Miller, and began to have doubts about Packer's story. When the party reached Sagashe, Colorado, Packer made arrangements to room in Dolan's saloon. Larry Dolan, the owner, 
claimed that Packer spent around $100 during his stay, and that Packer even offered to lend him $300. Packer also spent $78 in Otto Mears General Store. Nutter and other members of McCrew's original party became very suspicious of Packer and threatened to hang him. General Adams, head of the Los Pinos Indian Agency, stepped in just in time to save Packer. After being interrogated by General Adams, Packer signed his first confession. Old Man Swan died first and was eaten by the other five persons about ten days out of camp. Four or five days afterwards, Humphreys died and was also eaten. He had about $133. I found the pocketbook and took the money. Sometime afterwards, while I was carrying wood, the butcher was killed as the other two told me accidentally, and he also was eaten. Bell shot California with Swan's gun, and I killed Bell. Shot him. I covered up the remains and took a large piece along, then traveled 14 days into the agency. Bell wanted to kill me with his rifle, struck a tree, and broke his gun. General Adams believed that if Packer were telling the truth, he would have no problem leading a party of men to the original campsite. The physical evidence would either prove or disprove Packer's story. Packer originally consented to lead the party, but after claiming to be lost and rushing at Constable Herman Louder with a knife, he was jailed in Sagashe. The jail at that time was little more than a log cabin, and after being passed a makeshift key for his irons and given some supplies, Packer easily escaped. On March 11, 1883, Packer was discovered by Jean Frenchie Cabazon in Cheyenne, Wyoming, living under the alias of John Schwartz, one of the original members of the Utah Mining Party, who stayed in Chief Ore's camp in the winter of 1874. Cabazon reported Packer to the local sheriff, who apprehended him and contacted General Adams. Adams persuaded Packer to make his second confession when he signed on March 16th, which he signed on March 16th. Instead of claiming that the men gradually killed each other to survive, Packer, Packer now claimed that Shannon Bell had killed the others while Packer was out scouting. On April 6th, a trial began in Lake City, Colorado, and seven days later, Packer was found guilty of premeditated murder and sentenced to death by hanging. According to a local newspaper by preceding judge M.B. Gary, he said, Stand up, <laughs> stand up, you vicarious men-eating son of a bitch, and receive your ye sentence. When you come to Hisdale County, why do I feel like I'm speaking like, a, like an Irish accent? Stand up, you vicarious men, eating son of a bitch, and receive your sentence. When you come to his, I'm just going to go with the, the accent. When you come to Hisdale County, there were seven Democrats, but ye, but you, yeah, I feel like a pirate, but you, yeah, at, at five of them. God damn ya. I sentence you to be hanged by the neck until your deed dead, dead, as a warman agent reducing thy <laughs> democratic population of this county. Packer, you Republican cannibal, I would sentence you to tell hell, by, but the statues forbid it. So that's what the judge said. <laughs> Court records present Judge Gary's, uh, Gary's sentence as conventionally apolitical. Alfred Packer, the judgment of this court is that you be removed from hence to the jail of Hisdale County and there confined until the 19th day of May, 
1883, and that on said 19th day of May 1883, you be taken from thence by the sheriff of Hisdale County to a place of execution prepared for this purpose. At some point within the corporate limits of the town of Lake City, in the said county of Hisdale, and between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. of said day, you then and there by said sheriff be hung by the neck until you are dead, dead, and dead, and may God have mercy upon your soul. So basically, what I read in that somewhat pirate Irish accent was what he actually said, word like verbatim, and then what I just read right now was basically like a more <laughs> more understandable version of what was originally said. So, second trial of Alfred Packer. In October of 1885, the sentence was reversed by the Colorado Supreme Court as being based on an ex post facto law. On June 8, 1886, Packer was convicted of five counts of manslaughter and sentenced to 40 years. Eight years for each count. At another trial in Gunnison. At this time, this was the longest custodial sentence in U.S. history. On June 9th, 19th, 1899, Packer's sentence was upheld by the Colorado Supreme Court. However, he was paroled on February 8th, 1901. After his parole, Packer went to work as a guard at the Denver Post. He died in Deer Creek in Jefferson County, Colorado, reputedly of dementia, troubled and worried at the age of 65. Packer is widely rumored to have become a vegetarian before his death. He was buried in Littleton, Colorado. His grave is marked with the veteran's tombstone listing his original regiment in 1862. On July 17, 1989, a hundred and fifteen years after Packer allegedly consumed his companions, an exhumation of the five bodies was undertaken by James E. Stars, then a professor of law specializing in forensic science at George Washington University. Following an exhaustive search for the precise location of the remains at Cannibal Plateau in Lake City, Colorado, Stars and his colleagues Walter H. Berkeley concluded I don't think there will ever be any way to scientifically demonstrate cannibalism. Cannibalism, per se, is the ingestion of human flesh, so you'd have to have a picture of the guy actually eating. In 1994, David P. Bailey, curator of history of the history at the Museum of Western Colorado, undertook an investigation to turn up more conclusive results than stars. In the Audrey... A Tharkeel collection of firearms owned by the museum was a Colt revolver that had reportedly been found at the site of Packer's alleged crime. Exhaustive investigation into the pistol's background turned up documents from the time of the trial. A Civil War veteran that visited the crime scene stated that Shannon Bell had been shot twice and the other, vic and the other victims were killed with a hatchet. Upon careful study of Bell, he noticed a severe bullet wound to the pelvic area, and that Bell's wallet had a bullet hole through it. This seems to corroborate Packer's claim that Bell had killed, that ba Bell had killed the other victims, and that Packer shot Bell in self-defense. By 2000, Bailey had not yet proven a link between the adequate p antique pistol and Alfred Packer, 
but he discovered that forensic samples from the 1989 exhumation had been archived. An analysis in 2001 with an electron microscope by Dr. Richard D.J. at Mesa State College found microscopic lead fragments in the soil taken from under Shannon Bell's remains that were matched by spectrograph with the bullets remaining in what was indeed Packer's pistol. While it appears certain that Bell was killed by a gunshot, the question of whether or not it was murder still remains unanswered to this very day. And that ends the brief story of Alfred Packer, the first ever recorded history of Cam- the first ever incident recorded incident of Alfred of oh my god, the first ever recorded incident of cannibalism. So, like I said, uh, technically Alfred Packer is the first um, recorded incident of cannibalism, as you know, prior it was just speculation. And, um, cause like I said about the Neanderthals, but it was believed cannibalism has been around since, since ever, <laughs> to be honest with you. Cause I, I, I know there was acts of cannibalism went during like, um, the hard times of, uh, the French Revolution because there wasn't really a lot of food. So I know people did commit uh, acts of cannibalism during that time, or it was believed that they did do that. Um, I mean, I can look more into it. Um, if you guys want me to just dedicate a whole episode to the history of cannibalism, by all means, uh, hit me up on uh, on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast or send me an email via uh, via email. I mean, at Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook dot com, and I will be more than glad to just dive into the sick, fucked up world of cannibalism because um, there's actually a lot, a lot of cases of uh, speculated cannibalism. So on to the next case of Tetsum, Tetsumu Miyazaki. I'm probably saying his name wrong, but I want to say it's Tetsutomu Tetsutomu Tetsumoto Tetsu. <laughs> We're just gonna say Miyazaki because that's a lot easier for me to say. Or the Otaku Killer. We'll just go with the Otaku Killer. So. Miyazaki, also known as the Otako Murderer or the Otako Killer, Otako is basically um, Otaku is basically is Japanese for little girl. So to translate that in English would be the little girl murderer. And he was a Japanese serial killer, cannibal, and necrophiliac who abducted and murdered four young girls in the Satama and Tokyo prefectures from August 1988 to June 1989. His crimes included vampirism and the preservation of body parts as trophies. Miyazaki's premature birth left him with deformed hands, which were permanently gnarled and fused directly to his wrist, which meant he needed to move his entire forearm in order to rotate his hand. Due to his deformity, he was often ostracized and bullied when he attended Itsukachi Elementary School, and consequently kept to himself. He attended Medi Nakano High School in Nakano, Tokyo, and was a star student until his grades dropped dramatically. He was ranked 40 out of 56 in his class and did not receive the customary admission to Miji University. Instead of studying English and becoming a teacher, as he originally intended, he attended a local junior college and studied to become a photo technician. In the mid-1980s, Miyazaki moved back into his parents' house near his father's print shop, sharing a room with his elder sister. 
Although Miyazaki's family was highly in influential in Itsugachi, where his father owned a newspaper, Miyazaki expressed no desire to take over his father's job. After his arrest, Miyazaki would say that what he really craved was being listened to about his problems, but believed that his parents, more worried about the material than the sentimental, would have not heard him and he would have been ignored. In the same confession, he said that by this period in his life, he had begun to consider suicide. Miyazaki was rejected by his two younger sisters and felt he only received support from his grandfather. In May of 1988, his grandfather died. This served to deepen his depression and isolated him even further. In an attempt to retain something from him, Miyazaki ate part of his grandfather's ashes. A few weeks later, one of his sisters caught him watching her while she was taking a shower. When she told him to leave, Miyazaki attacked her. When his mother learned of the incident and demanded that he spend more time working and less time with his videos, he attacked her as well. Between August 1988 and June 1989, Miyazaki mutilated and killed four girls between ages four and seven and sexually molested their corpses. He drank the blood of one victim and ate part of her hand. These crimes, which prior to Miyazaki's apprehension, were named the Little Girl Murders, and later the Tokyo Satama Serial Kidnapping Murders of Little Girls. Shocked Satama Prefecture, which had few crimes against children at the time. During the day, Miyazaki was, by all accounts, a mild-mannered individual. Outside of work, he randomly selected children to kill. He wrote to the families of his victims, sending them letters recalling the details of his murders. Police found that the families of the victims had something else in common. They all had received silent, nuisance phone calls. If they did not pick up the phone, it would sometimes ring for about 20 minutes or so. On August 22, 1988, one day after Miyazaki's 26th birthday, Ma Mari Kano, a four-year-old girl, vanished while playing at a friend's house. After failed attempts to find her, Kano's father contacted the police. Miyazaki had led Kano into his black Nissan Langley and abducted her. He drove westward of Tokyo and parked the car under a bridge in a wooded area. There he sat alongside the girl for a half hour before murdering her. He then engaged in sexual acts with the corpse and left her corpse in the hills near his home. He took her clothes with him and departed. He allowed Mary Kano's corpse to decompose for a while before later returning to remove the hands and feet, which he kept in his closet. These were recovered upon his arrest. He charred her remaining bones in a furnace, ground them into powder, and sent them to her family in a box, along with several of her teeth, photos of her clothes, and a, post and a postcard which read, Mari, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. On October 3rd, 1988, Miyazaki was driving along a rural, rural road when he spotted seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa. He offered her a ride and she accepted. He then drove to the same place he had killed Kano and killed Yoshizawa. He engaged in sexual acts with the corpse and took the girl's clothes with him when he departed. 
and on December 12, 1988, four-year-old Erika Namba was returning home from a friend's house when Miyazaki kidnapped her, forcing her into his car. He drove to a parking lot in Aguri Satima, forced her to remove her clothes in the back seat, and began to take pictures of her. After killing her, he tied her hands and feet behind her back, covered her with a bedsheet, and placed the body in his car's trunk. He disposed of the girl's clothes in a wooded area and left the body in the adjoining parking lot. Miyazaki sent a postcard to her family, assembled using words cut out in magazines. Erika, cold, cough, throat, rest, death were all placed on the postcard. On June 6, 1989, Miyazaki convinced five-year-old Ayako Nomoto to allow him to take pictures of her. He then led her into his car and murdered her. He covered the corpse with a bedsheet and placed her in the trunk of his car, taking the body to his apartment. He spent the next two, day two days engaging in sexual acts with the corpse, taking pictures of it in various positions and filming it. When the, when the body began to decompose, Miyazaki dismembered it, abandoning the torso in a cemetery and the head in the nearby hills. He kept the hands from which he drank blood and ate part of them. Fearing that the police would find the corpse, he returned to the cemetery and the hills two weeks later and carried the remains back to his apartment where he hid them in his closet. If you think about it, that almost sounds similar to... Um, the Sacramento Vampire Richard Chase episode that I did where he, um, Richard Chase, broke into a home and he um, murdered, I believe it was four or five people. It might have been three. No, it was it was four because he murdered um, a woman. He murdered her nephew who was visiting at the time. Or I think it was her son. And he was only two years old and he shot, Richard Chase shot him in the head. He was the last one that Richard Chase killed. He found him hiding in behind like um, his mother's bed in his mother's room. He walked up to him, pointed the gun to his head and shot him point blank range. And not only did Richard Chase kill him, but he took his body back with him to his apartment where he slit his throat and he drank blood from them. And not only that, but he cut the two year old's penis off and he drank blood from the throat wound using his penis like a straw. So, fucking brutal, I guess. <laughs> um, but after he was done doing what he did to the two-year-old, Richard Chase um, hacked the body up, and he left the body in different areas, the body parts in different areas. So go back to the episode to listen to it if you haven't, and you're a new listener. But I did an episode about Richard Chase, the Sacramento Vampire, and you'll find all that out. But basically... Um, Miyazaki, the otaku killer, kind of did the same thing here, where he left, um, what is her name, Ayako Nomoto, he left her body parts in a cemetery, well, he left the torso in the cemetery and her head in a different area, but he kept the hands. Oh, man, it's pretty fucking brutal. And it's weird because his hands, I imagine, well, maybe because he overpowered these victims, because again, they are children, you know, she was only four years old. Or actually, Ayako was five years old and Arika was four years old. So he, he preyed upon small children. So I imagine, obviously, he will be able to overpower them. But I can't imagine if he was to choose like a maybe like a teenager. They obviously he probably would because of his deformity. He, in order for him to turn his hands, he had to move. He has to move his whole 
his whole forearm. He, he, you know, he can't, like, you or me, if you don't have this deformity, are able to just move your wrists. But him, he had to move his whole forearm. He had, that means he had to move his whole arm just to rotate it. So, on July 23rd, 1989, Miyazaki attempted to insert a zoom lens into the vagina of a schoolgirl in a park near her home and was confronted by the girl's father. So, obviously, <laughs> this episode is pretty graphic. I forgot to say a warning. Um, and I know right now is a bad time <laughs> since I said all that stuff. Um, but yeah, this is not an episode to listen to around kids. And technically, my show isn't for kids anyway, so you shouldn't really be listening to this. But now that you know, unless you're at work and you have your headphones on, that's fine, by all means. Or unless you want to get fired, just unplug those bad boys out and you'll get fired. After fleeing naked on foot, Miyazaki eventually returned to the park to retrieve his Toyota car, whereupon he was arrested by police who had responded to a call by the father. A search of Miyazaki's two-room bungalow produced 5,763 videotapes, some containing anime and slasher films, later used as a reasoning for his crimes, and interspersed among them was video footage and pictures of his victims. He was also reported to be a fan of horror films, of which he had a collection of. Miyazaki, who retained a perpetually calm and collected demeanor during his trial, appeared indifferent to his capture. The media called him the Otaku Murderer. His killings caused a moral panic against otaku, accusing anime and horror films of making him a murderer. These reports were later disputed. In Iji Otsuka's book on the crime... He argued that Miyazaki's collection of pornography was probably added or amended by a photographer in order to highlight his perversity. Another critic, Fumia Ichihashi, suspected the released information was playing up to public stereotypes and fears about otaku. As the police knew, they would help cement a conviction. Miyazaki's father refused to pay for his son's legal defense and committed suicide in 1994, stating that he should have never had a son before he died. Damn. He shamed his father so much. I mean, I imagine that would shame anybody's father, but I don't think in American culture, I don't think, because I mean, there's a lot of fathers that have um, evil fucking sons and they're still alive. Or, I mean, take for instance, uh, what's her name? Casey Anthony. Her father is still around, but he hates her. Um, which, that'd be an interesting episode, I think, to do if I fully committed to it and did everything about it. Because that case alone is just fucking crazy. And I get it that everybody grieves in different ways, and I'm not going to get into all of the details of it. But this, the shit that she did... it. What sucks is, um, there was a juror... I remember seeing a documentary about Casey Anthony. I know I'm going off topic here, but there, there was a juror who kind of pretty much summed it up the way I saw it as. Was the juror said that I have no doubt in my mind that she killed her child. And she did it because she didn't want to have the child. She felt like the child was um, a ball and a chain. She was a prisoner to her own child. She couldn't go out and do the things that she wanted to do before she had her child. And he said that I don't doubt that she killed her child. The only reason why I said not guilty was because it was the court's, it was, it was the defense's, not the defense, it was 
the prosecutor's fault for not painting how she killed her child. So that's why, you know, he was one of them that voted not guilty. So that's kind of what I thought, too, of the case, too. They just, they, they kept saying that she did, they just never said how. And that's something that prosecutors have to do, is to say how and why. Not just why, but how as well. So anyways, back to Miyazaki, the otaku killer. The trial began on March 30th, 1990. Often talking nonsensically, Miyazaki blamed his actions on Ratman, an alter ego who Miyazaki claimed forced him to kill. He spent time during the trial drawing Ratman in cartoon form. The Tokyo District Court judge judged him still aware of the magnitude and consequences of his crimes and therefore accountable. He was sentenced to death on April 14, 1997. His death sentence was upheld by both the Tokyo High Court on June 28, 2001 and the Supreme Court of Justice on January 16, 2006. He described his serial murders as an act of benevolence. Child killer Karu Kobayashi described himself as the next Totsumo Miyazaki or Marmoru Takuma. Miyazaki stated, I won't allow him to call himself the second Tatsumo Miyazaki when he hasn't even undergone a psychiatric examination. Minister of Justice Kuno Hatoyama signed his death warrant and Miyazaki was hanged on June 17, 2008. The unusual swiftness of his execution as well as its timing soon after the Akihabara massacre. Um, if you're not familiar with the Aki, 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 Habara Massacre. The Akihabara Massacre was an incident of mass murder that took place on Sunday 8th, June 2008 in the Akihabara shopping quarter for electronics, video games, manga, and anime in the Soto Kanda in Tokyo, Japan. So that's probably going to be featured in a future episode that I'm working on. I'm just trying to collect which stories I want to do. I'm going to basically do massacres and killing sprees and just kind of lump them up into one big episode. Because um, I have a bit. I even have ones that actually have um, like the 911 calls and you can hear some pretty, pretty fucked up stuff. So be prepared for that episode because that's going to be a pretty intense episode. Um, so be prepared for that episode. Mentally. So you're going to want to be fucking high for it. Either drunk or high. So anyways, let's continue. Um, and prompted questions regarding the two incidents. The Ministry of Justice had no comment. Ryozo Saki said his trial was long and that he was not willing to criticize Hatoyama. And thus ends the case of the otaku killer, Tatsumo Miyazaki. <laughs> so the worst part about all of this is that Although these little girls died, his death did not come fast. Maybe fast in the eyes of the law and the way they handled their executions at Japan. But obviously, he still got to live a pretty good amount of time in between the killings and his trial. So obviously, he wasn't living a lavish life, but he still got to live a pretty good life. And plus, we don't really know how they handle prison. Over the, well, at least I don't know how prison works in Japan. Because I know here in America, m most people who are child like either child molesters or just kill children in general, they are basically sought after in 
prison for some reason, even though all these prisoners do fucked up shit, like even murder adults and stuff like that, and some of them are serial killers, but for some reason it's like this unwritten rule that you don't fuck with children, which I mean, I'm not complaining, that's a good rule to have, but it's just kind of weird that that's their moral, that's their line, <laughs> like, you know, that's their line where it's like, oh, you don't fucking do that, so they'll usually, they're a target from the get-go when they go to prison, so I don't know if it's anything like that in Japan, but... It's an interesting, it's just interesting to know that that's just like what happens is, because, is, um, a little side note, I have a, a stepbrother who was in prison for quite a long time, and he was actually in San Quentin prison. Um, I don't really talk to him that much, but he was from my father's previous marriage when my father was still alive. And, um, he used to tell me that, yeah, every time there was a, a person that they knew that molested a child or killed a child, they would either kill him or they would just make his life really fucking miserable forever how long he was in there. And so a lot of them usually have to be put in, in isolation because they're just targeted all the time. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And actually, you know what would be a good episode? would probably be like prison. Like like the weird shit that goes on in prison. Because some of the stuff, um, sometimes when I fall into the, the YouTube rabbit hole, I see a lot of like riots from prisons and stuff like that. I, I recently saw a video where there's these two prisoners fighting because obviously you can smuggle um, cell phones in to prison. It's not hard. But because um, when my stepbrother was in prison still, um, which he no longer is, I well, he might, I, I don't know, but he's in Mexico the last time I heard. But um, um, he, he actually contacted me one time and he had a Facebook and an Instagram and everything. And I was like, what the fuck? But yeah, he said, like, yeah, it's not that hard to smuggle in a phone. You just got to talk to the right people and they'll do it for you. So I was like, okay. But yeah, uh, but in the video that I saw, somebody was recording two prisoners fighting and the prisoners were fighting and then he throws the prisoner over um, the railing. I believe they're on the third floor and you don't see the fall or anything, but you just see him get thrown over um, and you can just hear the other prisoner like, you know, saying like, whoa, fuck, what the fuck, you know, so I imagine, because um, prisons, see, one thing I always notice about prisons is that people tend to forget that when prisons first started, maybe they started, maybe they had the intention of this, but prisons are supposed to be rehabilitation centers, essentially. They're supposed to be rehabilitate the prisoner to go back into being into mainstream society. But I feel because of our prison system, our prison system is basically meant to just keep them out of our hair, keep them away from us because they're not going to either, they, you know, and some of them, there are, you know, the few and far in between there, but there are some that do want to better themselves. But the majority of the time that I've seen, at least in my experience, especially with my stepbrother and everything, all it does is just make a criminal more of a criminal. And it's because it's all in the name of profits. Private prisons will do whatever they want. There's an episode of a show called Adam Ruins Everything. <clears throat> I really love that show, Adam Ruins Everything. So if you're looking for an interesting new show to watch, Adam Ruins Everything Adam Ruins Everything is actually on Netflix right now. The first season, and the new season just started. So you can, if you have cable, it comes on True TV. Um, if you have Hulu, it's also there too. You can catch up on the episodes too the day after they first premiere. But I love that show because basically he just gives all the information and ruins everything that we like or that we just tend to do in society. 
Um, he talks about airplanes and how they're really dumb. He talks about cars and everything, about the, the way we handle our cars. Like, he basically he starts off like, why is it that we can't go into a store and just buy a car? Why do we have to go to a car dealership? And he actually goes on to explain why having car dealerships are really bad. And he even talks about, like, before cars were a new thing, there weren't really, people used to walk everywhere because everything was close by, but because we wanted to make cars a necessity. We started making stores and like you, they not putting them close together. And it's just a, a fucking interesting show. And I love it. He talks about restaurants, talks about movies. He talks about, um, the Western, like how Americans perceived the way Western days were when they weren't actually the way they are in movies. It was just the movie era that created the idea of the cowboy and everything. Cowboys weren't really like how they are because most cities, back in western days were actually you had to check your guns in you weren't allowed to carry your gun when you walked around in a town you had to check it in at the sheriff's like um you have to check it in with the sheriff actually and then you could get it back once you leave but i'm pretty sure not everybody followed that rule especially if you're quote unquote an outlaw or a gunslinger i imagine not everybody followed that rule but i just i can't recommend that show enough go and watch Adam ruins everything. It's a really, really good show. I learn a lot from it, and it's especially the prison episode, which I believe is the second episode of the first season. That's a really good episode. So if you're interested in learning about how fucked up our prison system is, go ahead and watch that show. It's a really good show. <sighs> Man. <laughs> so I know I'm. I said that I'm going to be doing a, con a giveaway, which I am going to be still doing a giveaway. I just haven't really got the things that I'm going to be giving, but I might as well just announce it. So essentially what I'm going to be giving away to a lucky winner who, if you choose to join this giveaway is I'm basically going to, I have t-shirts that I'm making. They just haven't come, came in yet. They, they, you know, I thought they were going to come in, so they haven't yet, but I'm making t-shirts. So the giveaway is you're going to get a free t-shirt. Whoever wins it, you're going to get a free mug that has and the shirt is going to have Strange Talk Podcast. It's going to have the logo of Strange Talk Podcast on the shirt. And you're going to get a mug that has the Strange Talk Podcast logo on it as well. Plus a Funko Pop that I'm going to be choosing. So I'm going to show everything in detail. I just haven't announced yet because I don't have I don't have the items with me. And I want to take a picture of them so you guys can see it in all its fucking glory. But I have yet to find... I mean, I have yet to receive the product. So, you know... As soon as I get that, I will be doing the details, but I mean, I imagine I'm, I'm probably going to start doing, I just don't know what I want to do yet for the giveaway. I don't want to do the same thing I did last time where people had to repost a, a hashtag or something. So I will be doing the giveaway shortly and I'm probably going to be doing it soon. So, you know, if you are not yet, go ahead and follow me at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram so you can keep up to date when the giveaway is going to be launching. Also, I recently started a Patreon. I have a couple Patreons. Um, Patreons. Is it Patrons or Patreons? Uh, who cares? But I have a couple. So um, if you don't know about Patreon, basically you can go to patreon.com forward slash strange talk podcast and you can become a tier member. And what a tier member is, is you're not only supporting the podcast by paying a monthly fee. So I only have two tiers right now. It's a dollar. So you're only paying a dollar a month. It's really not that much. Um, the next tier is $5, but each tier comes with bonus perks. So when I start getting more Patreons, 
I will be doing bonus episodes that only is exclusive to Patreon members. So right now I only have a, a few. I don't have enough that I feel is um, sufficient enough to start doing the bonus episodes. But once I get a few more, I'll start doing bonus episodes that will be exclusive to Patreon members only. And so not only that, but you get t-shirts depending on what tier you choose. And, you know, I'm going to be giving out more things as it progresses and it starts gaining more traction. So, yeah, just go ahead and visit patreon.com slash podcast to become a tier member. And you'll be supporting the show and, you know, you'll be awesome for that. So, thank you for joining me on this episode of Alfred Packer and Tatsumo Miyazaki, the otaku killer. I hope you guys enjoyed all the information and brutal shit that the otaku killer did. Um, so stay tuned for the next episode. Well, actually stay tuned for this week in crime, which will be coming on, which will be launching on Wednesday. As you know, I do this week in crime, which is, um, uh, episode that's just me bringing you fucked up news from around the world and good old America. So get ready for that and get ready for Monday's episode. So go ahead and follow me on Instagram at strange talk podcast to see what those episodes will be. As always, stay strange.